Hello from Estonia and welcome to the Startup in Estonia podcast produced by Startup Estonia, hosted this season by me, Adam Rang. So each episode in this third season is going to focus on a different aspect of building a successful startup with a guest who has some very valuable advice to share around that topic based on their own experience of what they got right um, and also just as importantly what they got wrong. And I'm really excited about the guest who has joined us today as well as the topic which is how to pivot your business. So this is something that a lot of startups go through especially now during the pandemic when so many of the factors that founders have built their companies on have shifted so dramatically and unexpectedly. And our guest today has recently pivoted her own business. Um, and it's a really fascinating business too, which we're going to learn more about. Carolee Hendricks was Estonia's youngest inventor with a patented product at the age of 16. She was the CEO of MTV Estonia at the age of just 23, really. Um, and she's the founder. Of, <laughs> and she's the founder and CEO of Jobatical, a great startup based here in Estonia that has gone through its own pivot. So we're going to learn more about that. Welcome to the show, Carolee. Happy to be here. Um, and you, you, you're regularly traveling the world, but I guess at the moment with the pandemic, you're mostly in Estonia a lot more. Yeah, I have been much more steady here in Estonia. Um, I was laughing that I finally got my uh, One World Platinum and then the travel stopped. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a yeah. bar. But we will definitely start moving again. Uh, but it's happy to be here because we have the the, the story uh, with you, right? Because mm. you actually came to Estonia through Chibatical. Yeah, or... now, I have to confess an interest here, actually, to the <laughs> listeners. So yeah, I, I got my first job in Estonia through Jobatical. The person who hired me got their job in Estonia through Jobatical. <laughs> and, and even after I joined, like we continued to use Jobatical. So we continued to hire people through the platform. And those people are still here in Estonia today, and they're still my very good friends. So I have to say a personal thanks, and uh, yeah, <laughs> it's good it's, to be here. It's, so it's an honor to be in your show now. And so you, you're actually just around the corner. You have a very international team. How many employees do you have? Do we have now? Right now, I th huh, it's a good. I think it's 34 people. Oh, wow. uh, so we have uh, our headquarters is in Estonia. Mm. Uh, but yes. Uh, I, we have a lot of people who have flown here from different countries, from India, Costa Rica, um, etc., to build our, to build my, or help to build my vision. So it's uh, the, uh, so we have people from ten different nationalities, but we also wow. have offices in Berlin and uh, Madrid. Okay, uh, Kauli, how do you convince people to come live in Estonia? How do I convince people? Um, Is it the weather? Uh, definitely not the weather. But I, I, I think, uh, yeah, talking about uh, the kind of the workforce today, I think uh, there's a combination of, I think, Estonia and the the digital brand, uh, the user experience uh, mm. being so good. That's what I always emphasize to people. Also, I, I believe what e-residency has helped Estonia to create is like the real digital tiger, the innovator uh, among other countries, as well as the fact that when you have an engaging vision uh, and mission, then people want to join you. Mm. So, But we are also uh, very remote friendly, so we have people... Uh, you know, there's foreigners in Estonian office, but there are also Estonians abroad and there are foreigners abroad. So we are all over the place. Yeah. And some of the people listening might actually be considering moving to Estonia to start up their company. Like, what's the biggest cultural shock like your international employees go through when mm -hmm. they arrive here? Maybe let's start from the good, though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest culture shock, I, I remember when our... Uh, 
my former colleague, an American who moved here with his family from Florida, uh, he said that Estonia has forever spoiled him mm. just because everything is so simple. Yeah. Like from just being a citizen here, uh, uh, you know, how the kindergartens work or how how the taxes work, everything is seamless. And, and I I think as an entrepreneur, why, you mentioned that I, I travel a lot, mm. but still our headquarters is here. One of the big reasons for that is that here I don't have to think and waste time about being a citizen. Yeah. Uh, so I can just focus on building my business and I can focus on my family, right? So, uh, so I think this is like a positive culture shock is that a country can actually function as easily and as uh, as and have as little bureaucracy as Estonia has. I think in terms of, um, so it depends on, uh, always where you are coming from. Yeah. I think what Estonia still has room in terms of uh, uh, learning is is really embracing diversity. So mm -hmm. so looking at the short history of the country, short history meaning that since we. Uh, became independent uh, after the Soviet occupation, right? So Estonia was 50 years behind the Iron Curtain. Then you didn't see any diversity, right? Mm. Uh, and then we have had this short time, short window. So I think uh, uh, bring, bringing more diversity uh, and seeing more of diversity around the cities of uh, Estonia, that's something that we still have um, uh, room to uh, develop. And I think Chobatico is contributing into it very effectively. Yeah. Because, but yeah. for a startup, what is the value of having a more diverse team? What is the value? Oh, uh, actually, Jubatical first hire was from Argentina. Mm. So it's funny because we started really to hire internationally from day one. And honestly, um, if I compare to my previous, because I have been an entrepreneur and leading teams, building teams for a long time, I think the one big thing, uh, first of all, Today, uh, w when we hire, we don't think about where the person is from. We're just looking for a best person. Mm. And when you have that mindset, you can really have a much wider choice. Because, mm. I mean, Estonia is a one million uh, um, people country. The likelihood that the, exactly the right person is here for each and every role is is very unlikely, right? Yeah. The second thing is, is uh, for me, what uh, building or this diverse organization has taught is that my team members are asking me questions that I didn't maybe even know that are questions. Like they are looking mm. things from a very different angle. And I think uh, I have had a lot of debates around culture fit versus culture ad, and I'm very big advocate for culture ad. And culture fit in many ways, I would say, is that you are hiring people who are like you. And you're very comfortable with people who are like you. And you are nodding to each other around the table, everybody agrees. You tap uh, each other's shoulder and go to a pub, but then who is challenging your ideas? It's the challenge that actually takes you further. And what my team has uh, helped me a lot is to ask those questions that I didn't even figure that were questions, which have opened avenues uh, for us. So I think in many ways, organization is, is like, like when you think about your life, if you would have, you know, uh, you are you are born in UK and then you uh, travel to, uh, let's say, France, and that's the only country you keep on traveling, mm. uh, you have much narrower uh, look on life 
than if you would be traveling to different countries of the world and and explore and learning constantly learning. So I think the same way with the um, diverse organization is that if you hire people like you, you kind of st stand still. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you hire people who bring something uh, a culture had to your team, you keep on evolving and growing. And this is one reason kind of migrants tend to be very entrepreneurial is that they do, they bring new experiences with them, but then they see things locally, which where they can add exactly. more value. There's, and there's even scientific proof that there's a, that traveling makes you more creative. Mm. But if you think about, I think uh, it was a good aspect that you brought in, it was the uh, entrepreneurial. I think if you think about person leaving their own country and to live in a new country, that's you need to have a little bit of entrepreneurship in you in order to make that step. Yeah. So the people who actually go uh, are are ready to really step beyond their comfort zone like that mm. are have this entre entrepreneurial mindset, which uh, I think are the best people to hire. And so you founded Jobatical six years ago. What was your original vision for the company? Yes. So um, I sat down with idea uh, in 2014. Um, actually, where I had, so I, I would tell a little bit of the story, why I found a Chobatica and where the idea came from. Um, so before that, I would actually, uh, I was lucky um, after I left television business. So mm. I decided to leave television. I had been in television, you know, first MTV and then um, uh, leading the launch for, for for Fox and National Geographic channels across Baltics. So I've, I was there for like seven years and decided that I want to leave television industry. It's uh, didn't believe in that uh, linear television anymore, and I decided to take some time off and figure out what's my, what's my next big thing. And I was actually I was lucky to get into a think tank. I don't know if you know, but Singularity University. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, so I was lucky to be uh, selected there. So I spent a summer in Mountain View, living in NASA Ames Research Center, mm -hmm. which is basically next to Google Campus. So as I'm a runner, I love running. So in the mornings, I ran passed by Google in order to get to the seaside. And that kind of inspiring, you know, you have all those big companies that are changing the world there. I started to ask the question, why are those companies that change industries coming from this region? What, what is special about this place? And I realized that it's not about people who are born there, but it's people who move there. Uh, um, so I started to ask coming from a tiny country like Estonia, what would we need to do in order to um, at attract highly skilled people instead of moving to Silicon Valley to discover far-flung cities like Tallinn uh, or, you know, go to Helsinki, Slovenia or, mm. or uh, um, Malaysia, for example. So my initial thesis was that in order to do that, we have to collect the highly skilled people into a community, basically borderless highly skilled people so who, who are ready to move and then match them to... Uh, the uh, businesses um, inspiring companies in those far-flung cities. So that's what mm -hmm. we started to do. Uh, that's how you got here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, we, we were initially a marketplace. Um, uh, we moved people from uh, 54 countries to, I think, 37 countries. And while doing it, what started to happen is that we started to support the relocation. Because, you know, you are hired, but then some you need to get the immigration and relocation done so you actually need to get to that place yeah so initially we started to do it as a like a supportive service like step by step testing it out how we can help the whole relocation process and what started to happen from there was that basically our clients 
uh, started to uh, come to us and ask, like, could you relocate also other people, not only the sabbatical folks? Yeah. And some of the companies said that, you know, we can manage the hiring part. Could you just do the relocation? So suddenly we had two businesses. One was the thing that we started off doing. Uh, and the other was basically something that just evolved and we were not investing in it. We did until last July when we turned around the company in 2019, uh, we had not invested even a euro in marketing uh, for that, but it was growing basically 20% month on month. So we had the situation that there is one part of our business where the conversion is pretty low, but mm. it's eating a lot of capital. The other that doesn't have any tech component but it's like just flying. And uh, so basically last year uh, with uh, my management team, we decided that uh, we will turn around the company. And instead of doing two things, because as a startup, you need to focus and you need to have a product market fit. Yeah. So we clearly had a product market fit and we actually clearly didn't have a product market fit. Uh, so uh, we basically said goodbye to almost half a million users. That wow. was a big wow, thing. really? Yeah, wow. people were really sad. Uh, uh, but, you know, we, you need to have focus and product market fit. Yeah. And that was the best decision, like... Uh, um, of, of Jobatical's history. Wow. And so what kind of challenges do companies face when they're trying to bring in people from abroad then? I mean, so first of all, so what we do is we are making, uh, uh, we are making immigration easy for mm. companies who are hiring, hiring from abroad, right? So, so basically how the process works is that there's a company, let's say TransferWise, relocating uh, people, uh, let's say, to their Italian office. Uh, we take over from the moment that the person accepts an offer. We do everything. Basically, TransferWise just has to greet that person uh, mm -hmm. at one point in their uh, in their office. So what is complicated? First of all, the whole immigration, and that's what we learned when we started to uh, initially, like I said, in July, we didn't have any tech around our relocation business. We just had a business that was growing. We started to investigate, is there any software that is actually uh, where you could manage the immigration relocation. Like, is there something that our team internally could use to manage our client relocation? And we learned that there isn't really. And all the whole, the whole system is so outdated. So you have manually filling government forms, mm. uh, which in Germany only t takes like seven hours, in Estonia three hours. So, um, uh, so we have a lot of outdated... Uh, uh, there is no... Um, Basically, the whole management of relocation was happening uh, uh, happening in spreadsheets, which means it's a messy process. So if a company is hiring foreigners, I think the funny funniest story of one of our uh, clients in Germany told this that an example, they have the whole team of you know recruiters, global mobility, and they are hiring uh, every month approximately like 10, 15 uh, people, right? And they uh, um, and it's such a messy process. You have a lot of emails. You have no visibility. What is the status of one or the other relocation? And they they had a story where they had hired somebody from Pakistan, who was supposed to start on Monday. And there was such everything was such a mess. So many people involved. No visibility was going on. That on Monday, when the person was supposed to start, they discovered the person is still in Pakistan. Yeah. So, <laughs> So what we created was basically, first of all, a software that enables the immigration agent to seamlessly manage 
So it's like a CRM for immigration yeah. agents. And that CRM is then connected for, to the interface of the company who is, you know, you just add, those are the people who are going to relocate and then track, you see exactly, okay, this is visa stage. This person is ar arriving in five days. So you can constantly track what's the status of each and every employee. And, and then the third party, was, which is actually... The most anxious counterpart is the talent. Yeah. Remember, if you're yeah. when you were relocating, you have so many fears, you have so many questions, you have no idea what's going on. So we also gave an interface to the talent, so the talent will be onboarded. So let's say use the TransferWise example, the talent will be an onboarded to TransferWise uh, platform, mm. uh, which feels like it's onboarding platform for uh, to TransferWise. So it's fully white labeled. And on that platform, they get an overview, everything that's going to happen, that those are the steps to get to Tallinn, or those are the steps to get to Barcelona, you know, Berlin, whatever the city and uh, country is. And they know exactly what they have to do. They upload their materials. Uh, instead of somebody filling forms, we just grab the information, put directly to the form. So instead of seven uh, hours, it takes three seconds. So basically, we gave everybody uh, transparency mm. uh, about the whole process plus we sp speed up the whole process um, which countries do you offer this in because i guess you've got to figure out mm -hmm. the migration uh, rules for one country at a time do you before uh, moving we, on? but this is actually much uh, simpler so it takes okay. us uh, uh, all together we can uh, launch a new country in one month so uh, oh. uh, we have we are in germany spain and estonia right now uh, initially, we were actually supposed to open 14 new countries in 2020, uh, but we reshuffled our plans with 2020, mm -hmm. uh, you know, COVID and pandemic. Yeah. But we are in, uh, yeah, in three countries. Uh, so, and the, there, basically, we have also uh, localized the whole process. Mm -hmm. um, and Carolee, my original perception of Jobatical was that it was for short, relatively short-term placements. And I guess kind of the name is a play mm -hmm. on sabbatical. Mm -hmm. um, did you, I mean, I've got to say for myself, I don't intend leaving Estonia. The mm. people I know who came mm. here through Jobatical, uh, they want to stay here as well. Um, did you switch from kind of short term to long term? Did you get feedback yeah. from the users? Yeah, like, that was basically very, very beginning of Jobatical. I think mm. when we talk about what um, uh, the learnings uh, that I have looking back, uh, if you ask me what I would have done differently, I think one of the biggest learning is, and that's why I, I really recommend to listen to the podcast Masters of Scale. And then the first episode, Ray uh, Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn, is running this uh, uh, um, uh, this this podcast and the first episode is with the Airbnb founder who exactly told I should have listened to like I wish this podcast episode would have been aired already in 2014 ah. but the first mistake that we did was that uh, um, when we started to build Shabbatical we started to build the product out of my idea Mm. When you think about what we did now and when we turned around the companies that the thing it was working on, on spreadsheets, the business model and everything was working in spreadsheets. So we just built tech around it to optimize and make it more efficient. But at the beginning of Jobatical, Karali had an idea and we started to build a business out of it or like a platform out of it. Mm -hmm. So what I would recommend is you always, basically you only build tech when, uh, the, uh, when, the, when the business in re like real life is working. So, so first marketplace should have been a spreadsheet. Okay. Instead of building a product right away, right? So, uh, which means that uh, then you see what it, what are the questions, what are the problems. You so you actually make it work without building tech 
and then build tech around it to optimize the whole process. And that's what uh, Brian Shelsky is talking about in that uh, first episode of Masters of Scale. Uh, so, our, but our producer it, is a fan of <laughs> as well. Look like. So, uh, so initially, my idea was that in order to, as I said, that the vision was that highly skilled people, let's build a community and then kind of attract them to the far-flung cities. My thought was that in order for them to go to places like Tallinn and work, they probably don't want to commit long-term. Mm. So that was my thought. And so we initially made it like short-term uh, gigs. What we found out was that the talent doesn't really care. I mean, like either you like it and you stay or you don't like it you don't stay yeah but for the companies we actually created two hurdles first a new thing for them was the thought about hiring from abroad like it's a big step and now you're telling me that i have to hire that person for short term so we kind of put two obstacles and we figured it out um, in a few months so we actually exchanged it quite fast hmm. but uh, but again this is this is something that you go and observe your users instead of think that this is my idea so let's build you know let's do it uh, right so you know i was doing some research before the show and a lot of companies uh, did learn this uh, the hard way and uh, i was actually blown away by how many like recognizable famous companies now were completely like they you wouldn't recognize their original business model so carolee <laughs> and listeners i put together a quiz for you so I'm going to read out the original mission of a company, and you've got to guess which well-known company it is today. Mm, very interesting. So question one, uh, which company was founded as a network where people can find and subscribe to podcasts? Yeah, Twitter. Twitter, okay. <laughs> I know Correct. that story. All right. um, I, I was, I, was amazing. I didn't know this at all. So. We actually share that. So our investor in US is, uh, was Twitter's early uh, investor as well. Ah. Okay. Sorry. Okay. That's that's an easy point for you there. So Twitter started as Odeo podcast sites. Uh, they were worried when iTunes uh, took over the podcast market, so they gave employees mm -hmm. two weeks to come up with new ideas, um, and they yeah they turned themselves into a micro blogging platform. And of course, the rest is history. Um, question two: an app game for checking into locations where at those locations you can use the app to earn points, make future plans with friends, and post pictures. Wonder if it's one of the so the Slack founder has had a gaming company. He had two. Ah. He had two actually. He did two. I don't know if that's one of them. No, because he had very cool story. Because he founded two gaming companies. One turned out to be Flickr, hmm. and the other turned out to be Slack. Uh, so, but I don't know if that's but interesting. I recognize this one right now. This one is Instagram. Um, ah, so yeah, Instagram story. was originally like yeah. a game, a location-based game. I didn't know that story. And, uh, yeah. And they just, obviously mm. they stripped everything mm -hmm. away apart from posting pictures. Um, and actually you're, you're right. Like when I was doing research, it's very similar to Flickr as well. Like, I guess a few kind of recognizable platforms started off as some kind of game or, yeah. Um, it was originally called Bourbon. Yeah. And, um, let's see, question three. What started as a fundraising platform for political and social causes, which only receive the funding once pledged donations reach a set target? I can tell you. You may have found local deals. Ah, oh, yes, it was the um, 
Yeah, Estonian equivalent was cherry. I was trying to figure out what um, they are. Groupon, yeah. Groupon, yeah. yeah, so yeah Groupon. Groupon yeah, was originally the point. Yes. And the idea was very similar, except mm. it was for you know political and social causes rather than business deals. So then Groupon started as like a small side project. Mm. They wanted to experiment with if it would work for local businesses. And that tiny side mm. project like completely Gave eclipsed mm. the rest of the business. Um, next question is, okay, which company started off as a retailer of espresso machines and coffee beans probably quite a lot but this one's quite well known. no idea starbucks really so before you know you could always get coffee in starbucks but originally it was as free samples mm. you used to have to go uh, buy the machine buy the beans take it home and make it yourself and it was uh, howard schultz mm, I didn't know that. went mm. over to italy and was inspired by the idea of actually let's create our own coffee houses instead so really interesting example of turning a product into a service and you know some companies pivot the other way around turn a service into a product and of course it was a very successful pivot I, probably one of the only places starbucks isn't successful is italy but, um yeah yeah really interesting example um okay this one question five uh, a little bit different i'm just going to read out some of their original products and uh, you can guess which company they are and i'll give you a clue they're from near to us in the nordic region so which company started off making paper then electricity rubber and then respirators and now they're famous for something else i mean is that i know that rubber or nokia was doing rubber nokia. boots is yes. that a nokia? the correct answer is nokia okay yeah okay. um so yeah before making mobile phones nokia was originally a paper mill um and actually they were making they started making respirators in the 1930s this I, did part I didn't know actually. and they continued making respirators until the 1990s really um, yeah. that part i didn't actually rubber boots i did know mm. that they were doing rubber but of course, Nokia could probably could have benefited from a few other pivots. Mm. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty tricky. Um, there are also like you know plenty of examples of businesses that didn't pivot, and those examples are just as important as a warning mm. about what happens if you don't change. Um, so, one more bonus question is: uh, Do you know which company invented the first digital camera? And I'll give you a clue: It's not a company that has benefited very much from the digital camera industry. The answer is Kodak. So yeah. Kodak invented yeah. the first digital camera, then they yeah, hid away yeah. the plans. and Yes, so basically they, they still didn't, they were not adapting to change, right? Mm. Um, yeah. They were yeah. worried that, mm -hmm. um, you know, if uh, digital cameras take off, it's going to destroy the rest their of business. their business, mm -hmm. which was dependent on um, film processing. And, well, you know, they did go into mm -hmm. bankruptcy, but that was, you know, mm -hmm. but, but digital not, cameras yeah. still became like a massive industry. And, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, that was pretty difficult, uh, although you did very well. Um, you, like from a founder's perspective, how does it feel when you go through this kind of pivot? Like, is there a tinge of sadness if you're moving away from like an original vision and have to make changes? Or is it like a very exciting process of like renewing the company? I think it's both, but it definitely... Uh you need time. I mean, for us, we made a, a very data-based uh, uh, mm. decision. I think in that sense, it was much easier to pivot into something that we saw was working ver versus when you, and to be honest, I don't even call it a pivot. I call it an evolution because even our mission didn't change. Our mission mm. is think beyond the borders and help the world to work together. And we're still doing that, but we're just doing a small piece of the long funnel that we were doing before. And we're very focused on that, right? And so we made a data-based uh, decision. So, uh, but but just giving, I remember when we, uh, when I did the presentation to our team, because, I mean, turning around the company, pivot, 
during the evolution, pivoting, however we call it, uh, it also meant letting go people. It go, meant letting go almost half a million users, something that I, we have been building for the past, you know, four mm. years. So um, it did, I, I even put like, you know, the picture of a ba- balloon flying away. So mm. you just le- need to let go. But the letting go part is really, really hard because you are so, y- you still want to think that the original idea works. And uh, only later, one of the founders from um, from our U.S. investor portfolio, we had a chat from Canada, who is much later stage company CEO. He said that you know the rule is that when you when you're not sure if you had a if you have a product market fit, then you probably don't have a product market fit, mm. uh, or then you don't have a product market fit. So basically, it it is not maybe. If it's maybe, then you don't. Uh, you either have or you don't have. Um, but letting go is very hard. Uh, um, but uh, I think the companies, and this is something that I tell my team uh, very often, especially now, again, uh, in during the COVID uh, uh, and lockdown and pandemic situation, uh, emphasized that we have a strong change muscle. I think mm. the companies who are good at change are the companies that actually survive. So I think this is a muscle as a founder and as a CEO, as a you know, as a as a company overall, you have to train constantly. Yeah. So and I think that's the story of Kodak. You know, mm. the change muscle didn't really uh, were, was not really used there while the world was changing. Is it always when? Uh, it, I'm just wondering, kind of how much risk it's reasonable to take during a pivot. For you, it seemed like more of a logical next step. You know, would you? Would you pivot even when the business is going right and you think, oh, there's a, you can take a risk to pivot to something that might work even better? Or is a pivot really, or an evolution, really a dramatic evolution really just required when you think this business isn't going to survive unless we change course? I mean, if something is working out well and you have numbers going up and you see it's uh, like, I, I think I'm very big believer of focus because I have made a lot of mistakes with uh, not being focused enough uh, in my life as a human, as well as, 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 as a business. Um, so I think if you have something that is working really uh, well, then you should be, uh, you should be focusing on growing that but mm. probably with Kodak also, you 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 are still you start to see at one point that things are changing around you. So you have to be constantly able to adapt to change. Mm. Um, so if something is not working, then you shouldn't be doing that, right? So uh, I think it's not so black and white question, yeah. but uh, to answer. But I think um, you should be good at change, and you should be focused. One thing I struggle with is kind of, I feel it kind of contradicts the idea of like entrepreneurs really have to have a strong vision and really push it through against like any obstacle and kind of when no one think it's going to turn out, you might be the only person who think like you're on the right path. And at what point do you have to realize like this isn't working out? Like it must be, and what point, you know, how do you know you don't, you just haven't pushed your original vision hard enough? Yeah, that's a good question, but I think your clients will uh, will uh, uh, you know your clients will start to uh, tell you that. Mm. So in that sense, if you have a vision but nobody's buying it uh, from in the market, there's one thing. I mean, when I started Chubatical, the first uh, um, because we launched at the end of 2014, right? Um, but I had the idea. You know, I was pitching to angel investors. So the first angel round we actually did um, with just an uh, 
presentation of my idea, right? Uh, so there, yes, you have to have a lot of resilience, uh, you know, you're running out of money, you're uh, convincing people to join your journey, and then you have to get over their self-doubt of, yes, you know, I can do it, this is good, and uh, and start testing it. Because, but after that, it's the market who will actually give you feedback because you have to be able to listen to your customers. If if you have a good idea, but nobody's buying it, then probably it's not a very good idea. Uh, there's no market for it, right? So you, you have to become a really good listener um, and uh, adapt to what the market is actually telling you, right? Yeah. And, and who else is part of that process of like... I, maybe I shouldn't say pivot anymore. I, I originally said this episode is going to be called kind of how to pivot. We might oh, have to change the pivot. name to evolution, <laughs> evolution, which I do prefer. Um, like, how do you bring people with you? And mm-hmm. like, and who is part of that process of like, you know, you mentioned your, your kind mm-hmm. of uh, shareholders. You've got obviously your uh, employees mm-hmm. and... And then you have like your customers and your users are kind of different people in this case. So you've got quite a few different stakeholder groups. Who's part of the process of like, where do you get the feedback from? Who do you consult before making the announcements? Yeah, I think uh, one definitely a big learning for me and what I'm really, really happy about is that today I have a very strong management team around me. So when, uh, and somehow just before we turned around the company, we, we kind of got into this place where, you know, we had a product lead who was definitely, who learned, uh, taught me about uh, building product and, and leading product. Uh, so we kind of, we, we are, you know, the same with, you know, engineering uh, um, operations. And so, so people around me suddenly were, and it, and it wasn't just me going to them, uh, to them and saying that we need to do it. Uh, uh, when I did the presentation to my management, individually, we have had, like, they had come to me saying that, you know, clearly there's, there's something here, we need to act on it. So, uh, so you need to have a strong team around you. And I'm very proud that I have a strong team around me. And with the, and, uh, I think the way we are running Chobatical uh, is, is that we have a lot of transparency with also with our rest of the team, which means that when I presented this to uh, the whole organization, which also resulted that like one third of their organization had was let go. I did it with all the data, all the reasoning. This is why we're doing it. You know, this is what the data is telling us. This is why we can continue to businesses. And, uh, and so basically we just make it so crystal clear what's the reasoning behind the decision. And I think why we uh, turned around the company so successfully was that, you know, when you let go one third of the company, my biggest fear was that the moral of the company can go down because you're, you know, mm. you're losing so many colleagues that you love, right? Um, but since we were so transparent about the reasoning and everybody got it, uh, even though we let go uh, some of the people, well, many of those people actually came to me uh, and said they get it and wished us luck. And the other side, uh, um, what we saw is that finally. Um, since we also presented it with a very clear roadmap, you know, this is now our product roadmap. This is where we are heading. Mission is the same. This is what, we, you know, this, those are the milestones. So suddenly we actually brought so much clarity about where we are heading because uh, what I learned is that we had been working on or putting a lot of effort on something that wasn't working. And that's very tiring for employee, mm. your, your colleagues as well. And finally, 
the data was showing this thing is working and we can accelerate this. We can, we're actually, this is the value that we're creating and people want to make a difference. Even though we have been always a very mission-driven company, you can have as much mission as possible. But when you see that, you know, 20 people in monthly are hired with all the work that we're doing, it's not very, you know, it doesn't feel that you're making a difference. Whereas now we had a very clear purpose, very clear roadmap, a very clear value proposition, and it was working even without tech. So I think what I saw was that after that change, my team, the whole organization started to move faster than ever before mm. because there was so much clarity. Did you, a lot of companies, when they go through this kind of change, they change their name. Did you ever mm -hmm. think of changing your yeah, name? Yeah, we or? did think about it. Uh, we did discuss it. And actually, you were talking about stakeholders. We also have a board. And actually, it was the first, you know, we decided with the management. Then I presented to the board. I was actually very nervous because, you know, we have investors there. We have invested all that money into building something and we're giving up that part of the business. Mm. And uh, uh, just the same way as with the um, uh, rest of the team, there was so much clarity. Uh, I mean, our clients already loved what we're doing. Uh, one of the examples was uh, when we sent out the change email to one of our immigration clients, which is a multinational company, they uh, wrote back in caps lock that it's the best news ever. Mm, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's so much kind of uh, that... Um, uh, I now I don't remember what, what, what was the question <laughs> about changing the name of ah, the company. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so we dis uh, discussed it and we discussed it with the board as well, and uh, and I, I think our board gave a very uh, good uh, advice. Everything has an opportunity cost, mm -hmm. uh, so if you are starting to rebrand yourself, that's a it's a lot of attention, a lot of work, a lot of money yeah. that you're going to put on something. That doesn't actually, you know, is it sabbatical yeah. or is it, you know, we had, I don't remember, something around aliens, what was our, uh, number, uh, because usually foreigners are called in many la uh, many languages in the legal aspect aliens. So mm -hmm. we had something an alien uh, um, uh, like name uh, candidate, but we, uh, and if you look at like Flipkart in India, for example, which is a huge, I don't know how many billion uh, yeah, dollar company now, which was completely pivoted, but kept the same name, but nobody cares about the yeah. name. Or Airbnb, yeah. I mean, where yeah. are the air mattresses today? There are no air, air mattresses. <laughs> so the name doesn't, so we might do it at one point, but we decided there's, uh, we will focus on building out the product, uh, launching new countries, and um, and I think that was a right decision. It's interesting you mentioned like your existing customers being happy because I was wondering whether you were kind of pivoting towards different customers. Where do you, do different yeah. organizations come to you now? It's the same people. It's the same they, people. You just it's add more people. value exactly, to them. Exactly. Exactly. We had a, the funny story uh, was uh, actually uh, with uh, Berif, uh, which. Uh, uh, was also our immigration was our and is our immigration client and with them I remember the quote and I used that quote with a team presentation when we turned around the company as well as in the board because it was such a perfect quote that thanks to chubatical immigration they managed to grow their uh, um, team seventeen times last year mm. so we. We were a recruiting business, but we were not doing recruiting for them. Mm -hmm. But thanks to our immigration, they were able to recruit faster. Really <laughs> so it was wow. like a very interesting like uh, uh, feedback that this part of our business was actually creating value to the original part of what we thought we should be doing. And at first, the the migration part of it was like just additional hassle. It was like additional of. hassle, yes. Mm -hmm. 
That's really interesting because I guess, you know, there's so many different ways you can uh, evolve or pivot. And, you know, you can, I guess the classic one is kind of turning a product into a service or a service into a product. For startups, it's, you know, between are you a platform or are you an application on someone else's platform? But sometimes, you know, it's about, you know, making your business leaner, focusing on something you're already doing. I guess, you know, Instagram is a very good example as well. Like they were always letting their users take pictures and post pictures. They just, they had to take a step back to see like that is where the value came from. I guess most of the time, pivoting is about kind of stripping away and fo- being more focused. Is it? Do many businesses ever think about expanding when they evolve, like, or as a startup, or is that kind of like? I mean, you should start expanding when something is working. Then mm. so that's the growth phase, right? Uh, you have a model that is working, and now you are expanding this. Uh, but you shouldn't be expanding uh, something that is not working. So, uh, and maybe that's something that we did or we tried to do with the old sabbatical. We call it old sabbatical that uh, uh, started to hire too fast too many people, even though it wasn't working. Like this, like the conversion. I mean, we got people hired. We relocated from all those countries to all those countries, but the conversion was very low. The model was not working, but we already went into kind of like a growth mode, right? Um, so, so you should expand if it's working, like if it's working, but you should not expand when it's not working. Mm. First step to find that product market fit, right? And how do you manage the communications around this? Because obviously you've got different stakeholders that are part of the process. And then you have to kind of make that public announcement. And I guess it's partly a celebration of a new direction, but then there's also kind of um, the job losses and that. So how do you, what's your communication strategy? I mean, you just, uh, uh, this is a strategy. Uh, I mean, yeah, different stakeholders, different uh, uh, ways of communicating, but I think uh, for for us and for me, you just have to be very transparent and tell the story. I mean, we told the story of the evolution very clearly to all our stakeholders. We told our users, talent users, that even though you know, even though people loved our platform, uh, what we discovered is that they can be so basically. In order to fulfill their dreams, this is what we need to focus. Uh, that's when we are going to give much bigger impact uh, uh, to global mobility uh, uh, versus doing the recruiting part. We also uh, had, you know, you have to go uh, back to your clients. What we try to do is that, you know, who, um, some of, some of the uh, clients had already prepaid uh, for recruiting campaigns in the future, we had to go back and see what we can do to, you know, so that the clients would be happy, mm. right? To find a solution where where we can give back at least partially what they had. So we, which meant that, you know, we were losing even more money, but at the same time to have like good feeling about collaboration with, with us. So, uh, so there's, there was a lot of difficult uh, discussions, but you I had some I, unhappy I th- clients during that process. I mean, we tried to make the unhappy clients happy. So I think at the end, uh, we managed to uh, to get uh, uh, everyone happy or happyish. So we really tried to have a good like integrity there. Um, in terms of people, uh, we were very transparent, as I told before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. There's, we didn't need, like, we, we didn't need anybody with recruiting talent. We didn't need any, anybody talent facing uh, anymore because we were completely B2B now, a uh, completely different business model. So, um, it, we just were very transparent about why and, uh, uh, what was the behind the decision. 
And you talked about your team's uh, change muscle. Mm. So like, how did your team kind of, how, or how have you and your team personally developed kind of over the last six years of building this company? How do you foster that kind of team spirit? And Yeah, I mean, there has been a lot of learning uh, for, for me and the team. Of course, a lot of changes in the team as well. Uh, we had two people who actually had been with us uh, I mean, besides my co-founder, uh, for five years, which is a big thing, right? Um, mm. So they had really seen the changes. But uh, as I mean, I have had a lot of learnings as a leader. We have had times where the morale was really low, uh, and it turned out the morale was low because of how I was working. Uh, so I had to really st- take a step back, tell my team that now I need to learn together with you to become a better leader. And they helped me uh, to become one. So we have a very, I think what I, what I can be really proud of today is that the culture or the, the way we communicate, um, the team members uh, can can come to me, give me honest feedback. Uh, I can go to them, to them, give honest feedback. We are, we are trying to treat, treat our employees as in a way uh, shareholders with, or like as transparent as possible, that they know the financial status, they know our concerns, they know our hassles. So, so today, I think what if I compare the jabatical that we had, I think it was 2017 when I had this moment of realization that uh, it was me why the where the team morale was low, and I had to take a step back. And I actually went to communication trainings in New York. Uh, I was very transparent about the mistakes that I realized I was doing. Uh, versus today, I'm really proud of uh, the uh, culture and the atmosphere we have today in the team. And a lot of it is the transparency, um, which means that as a leader, you have to be able to admit your mistakes. Mm-hmm. You have to say that this is what I did wrong. I see that this is the impact of me doing wrong, and this is how I'm planning to learn, and you can help me to uh, become a better leader. Well, I've been to your office before and I always got a very warm welcome. It's a very nice, I guess, just because it is such like a diverse team and like, yeah, really great office you have here. Um, Kauli, there's like yeah, really interesting trends at the moment in international recruitment. And like, I guess the big buzzword is about remote working because obviously during the pandemic, so many more people are doing it. Um, how does that kind of fit into your plans? Because I guess you're you're helping people move, but then you you are helping companies that want to move people together into one location. Uh, that's one part of it. Uh, first of all, what we're seeing, and to be honest, uh, what I believe uh, uh, is that companies still will be relocating people. Mm-hmm. So so uh, we are still living in the, uh, so if you look at the statistics, like there's never before ha- has uh, have countries experienced a talent shortage as they are experiencing now, mm-hmm. and it will become much more acute by 2030. So basically everybody's fighting for the same talent. And um, so that's one part of it. But there is one other part that uh, often I'm, I'm at, very often, especially now, asked the same question. Uh, are, are we now losing business because people will not be relocated anymore? There's another aspect, which is basically that now uh, more and more um, companies uh, are struggling with the fact that, yes, they would gladly allow people to work remotely from wherever in the world. But there's no legal, uh, there's no policy to support that. So basically, if if um, if let's say um, Facebook um, now knows that you know go and, or Google said I think the Google said that they will not open their offices until the next uh, summer, right? So suddenly all Google employees or let's say five thousand of them decide to go and work from Europe, mm. which is a great dream. 
uh, they can do it. Everybody knows that there's remote work is working. But now imagine if Google has 5,000 illegal uh, people working illegally in Europe because today uh, you uh, you either uh, are hired uh, in a local company in that local market or you go there as a tourist and as a tourist you shouldn't be working. Uh, you are illegal if you're working. It's not you shouldn't, you're actually illegal then. So uh, uh, so what we are seeing more and more uh, uh, companies asking us is to handle the immigration of their uh, remote employees who are uh, moving between different countries. And that's one of the reasons why the timing of the uh, digital nomad visa, which mm -hmm. we started uh, two years ago, Right now, the timing is perfect for that to actually come into effect because my prediction is that there will be like an explosion of digital nomads after this pandemic. Um, so, Carrie, maybe we need to start at the beginning here about <laughs> the digital nomad visa because, um, so yeah, our, our country has to pivot or evolve too. So, Estonia is has introduced a digital nomad visa. You are a huge part of that. Like, what was the process of introducing it and, and what is it for what people it? who don't yeah. know? So basically, the story started. I mean, we were doing sabbatical, uh, and we, uh, you know, this at that time we were still uh, recruiting sabbatical. And what we saw is that we have a lot of um, basically the same thing that I'm, uh, I was briefly mentioning before that we had uh, people who moved to a specific country to work there. Uh, in the local company, or we had people who were digital nomads and working remotely for companies. And what we realized is that when that person is working remotely for a company, they're working illegally, uh, that there is a, like a policy hole. And I think it was, yeah, it was uh, Pre President Kaljulaite at the end of 2016 in December, we had like a small group meeting with some of the founders, with the president. And that was the first time I actually pitched why Estonia should do <laughs> So it was 2016, but then it was just, uh, you know, I was talking to different people about this idea, but it was 2018. Uh, I think you were at the meeting as well. Were you at the meeting? Or Arno was. Arno, Arno yes. Yes, yep. Arno from e-residency. So Alex, we, we organized. Both of whom came to Estonia on through, through Jabatsko, yeah. yeah. Um, so we had this meeting. We organized a meeting with the ministries of, so there was interior ministry, economic ministry, different counterparts from the public office, as well as we included some of them digital nomad uh, communities uh, globally and we did a survey uh, that basically showed we made a case why the country would need to create a digital nomad visa how that will help the country mm. uh, and then also why why it is a pain for digital nomads and basically from the survey we saw that the number one problem for digital nomads either they are employed by a company or they are freelancers, was the visa situation. And they also said that a country that would solve that visa situation would be attractive to them, right? So uh, we wanted to create a visa that would fill that hole, that you don't, you can have, your employer can be Facebook in, you know, Silicon Valley, but you can legally work in a country uh, uh, remotely. Uh, so for a year. So that's basically the solution. I would have even made it maybe a little bit longer, but that's basically the solution we found. So for a year, you can work um, legally as a digital nomad, either as a freelancer or an employee of a corporation in another country. And it's important because, like I said, a lot of uh, uh, companies are struggling with it mm. because they would gladly allow their employees and we could have, you know, through our platform, we could do all the immigration miracles. Mm -hmm. But if the we can't do the immigration miracles, if the policy doesn't exist. So that's why we are encouraging. Uh, and uh, what we hope is that other countries will follow the lead. Mm -hmm. uh, 
of Estonia. So pretty much all countries at the moment have a system in which people kind of lie, kind of openly yeah. lie when they enter. They have to say they're a tourist yep. or... Yeah, you know. and then they're illegal. And then but, and a, a freelancer, you can do it. You can take the risk, mm-hmm. uh, hop in and hop out. Because but, where is the line between kind of answering an email on your phone or kind of actually yeah, working? But like I said, if you are working for a, an, a business... Mm-hmm. And you suddenly the business has illegal employees uh, all across the world. Mm-hmm. That will become big legal issue yeah. as well as PR issue, right? So, Kelly, um, I always see the same fear about um, remote work, especially kind of in recent months with the pandemic, and people have been talking a lot more about oh, we can work anywhere remotely. And then the next fear that comes in is kind of like oh, it's it's going to be outsourcing um, to people who are going to do the jobs cheaper than us, and we're going to lose our jobs and. Um, but then when I look at Jobatical and like I, you know, people aren't using Jobatical to find cheaper talent. They're, mm. they're trying to find the best talent exactly. and they're paying the global market rate. So I guess kind of what we're really seeing is kind of an equalization of like a global market and how much you pay for certain skills and talent. Exactly. It's funny. I hadn't actually heard that very much. I think that, uh, as, as, as people mm-hmm. can probably tell from my accent, I spend a lot of time listening to public mm-hmm. opinion in the UK. <laughs> um, and in the UK, I see this a mm-hmm. lot, kind of uh, this debate about, mm-hmm. yeah, remote working, how is it going to affect our jobs? And uh, at first people think, oh, it's great. We can go and live in a hot country and uh, be next to the beach. And then when they think about it a bit more and they think like, oh, but it means, you know, someone mm-hmm. else is going to take my job. Um, so I've mm-hmm. kind of seen that a bit recently. But I, I even remember actually Kaspar, who used to be the CEO of e-residency. I still remember when, when, because when he started to hire for e-residency through Chobatical, one of the things he said was that suddenly I had the whole world as a competition. Mm. So he's, you know, you, you see like somebody like Arnaud coming from the French president's cabinet mm-hmm. or somebody from Walt Disney, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, applying. So you, you suddenly don't compete this small group. You don't see your um, pipeline of talent being a small group of a, who are accidentally around you. And that was the old case, right? Accidentally, somebody's born in the, you know, lives in the next street and accidentally is that person the rightest person to hire. Whereas if you can uh, now, basically the whole world can you can be your uh, talent pipeline, there's much higher probability you will find the right person, right? Mm. And that's, uh, so, so I would look at the other way around, yeah. yeah. And I'm totally biased because you're talking about my former colleagues at e-residency <laughs> and now my friends. And uh, but I do think yeah, they've made a huge contribution to our country um, and yeah, allowed right. us to do more things here. So, Carolee, you've started three businesses in Estonia. Then, kind of for people mm-hmm. listening around the world, what's the advantage of starting mm-hmm. up in Estonia? Yeah, so I have also seen the evolution of starting up uh, in mm-hmm. Estonia because when I was 16, it was very different than it is today. I mean. Uh, I started Chibatical from a cafe. Uh, uh, it took me ten minutes. I was sitting, uh, um, you know, I, I was sitting in Wi-Fi, eating an omelette, and back then, yeah, drinking cappuccino. And uh, it took me ten minutes to start up a company. And like I said, I think the biggest advantage is that, like, one of the things that we have we have helped to make is that it is easy uh, it is easy to relocate people from whichever country which means that you can actually hire the best people and um, and relocation is not an issue the fact that you uh, bureaucracy is almost non-existent i think it's very simple country to navigate so you don't like i said you don't have to worry about uh, being an entrepreneur and the overhead, bureaucratic overhead around that, uh, you can just focus on your business. So I think 
Estonia has a great user experience um, and you can just put your time in the right place and focus instead of wasting it on nonsense and bureaucracy. I think that for me is a very uh, big advantage. That's wonderful. Kauli, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. Um, so yeah, we we often think of change as risky, but sometimes not changing is the riskiest thing you can do. And we've learned that pivoting comes in many different forms, but but you're not starting from scratch. Sometimes it's as simple as looking inside your own business and reevaluating what your customers want and where your users get the most value. And you know, sometimes that can be hard to spot, but you've got to take a, a step back. And we've learned that you have to take your stakeholders with you, investors, your team, your customers, and your users who might not always be the same people and and also make difficult decisions about what not to do and that might mean letting people go sometimes um and yeah uh, carly it's been wonderful having you here is there any last advice you'd give to entrepreneurs uh if they're considering kind of big changes in their business considering i, I think you said it really uh, i i think it's good uh to keep on training the change muscle because mm-hmm. i think uh, uh it, as we learned this spring, and uh, nothing mm. is under our, we don't control anything. So we have to have a good habit of uh, adapting to change. So keep on changing that. And uh, I mean, um, in general, what I've said to other entrepreneurs is I, I think what has helped me is to thinking of building a vision uh, is something like rock climbing. The main thing is just like keep on climbing and don't look down. Otherwise you will get dizzy and you fall. So just, you know, uh, focus on the right things and uh, keep on climbing. Mm-hmm. And Carly, thank you so much for helping Estonia change. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, Estonia kind of likes to think of itself as like a startup as well. So um, yeah, you've you've inspired others, but you've also had a direct um, involvement in kind of yeah changing the way Estonia works. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. Thank you.